0: and welcome to the London School of Economics. This is a great occasion for LSE and the Centre for Study of Global Governance. We have a real star-studded cast Uh, and uh, I'm not going to take too much of your time and uh, move straight on. Energy Crashes, Resource scarcity, Oil Wars, and Climate Change. What can be left out of that sort of title? Anyway, um, I'm very glad that we have uh, Mary Caldo Yaya Saeed Nicholas Dern and George Soros, they will, uh, they, will, they will talk for whatever time it is. There will be questions afterwards and the whole event is being recorded. I am I'm enjoined to tell you that. Mary Caldor is uh, the co-director of the Center for Study of Global Governance. She has done work on over a variety of topics including the arms trade, uh, new wars, uh, energy, uh, and she has a distinguished record as both an activist in human rights as well as a great scholar. Mary Keller.
1: Well, thank you very much, Meghnad. I should say that Meghnad is the founder of the Center for the Study of Global Governments and he was my boss and I'm really happy to welcome him back. I'm also... Delighted to welcome George Soros to LSE again. I think it was exactly a year ago we spoke about his book. And of course, and the size of the audience reflects the interest both in him and in the topic. And of course, I'm very, very happy that we've got Nick Stern here. Uh, he's back at the LSE, which is wonderful for us, and as most of you will know, is the author of this brilliant report on the economics of climate change. There were really two inspirations for this meeting. Uh, One is the book, which there should be copies of lying around, on oil wars, which has had a very long gestation. I, I, I just want to tell you a little bit about it because the origins of the book was that I got an invitation to the BP Christmas party. And the BP Christmas party at that time took place in the British Museum, in the room where the Elgin marbles are, and it was very, very nice. I was wandering around drinking delicious champagne and all sorts of things, and I didn't know a soul. So finally I went up to somebody with a big BP notice on his lapel and said, I don't know anybody, and I don't know why I've been invited. And he said, well, we invited you because we have decided that BP is going to become a human rights company. So I thought, this is fascinating, and we should have a research project on what it means for an oil company to be a human rights company. And that's the origin of our project, which we sought independent funding for. We didn't want it to be funded by an oil company, so it was funded by uh, the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. We did actually, BP did help us in one respect, which is that we had a conference when we completed our case studies to which we invited oil executives to comment on our case studies and they helped us with that so we're going to talk about that but the other um, and it's partly as a result of our work on oil that Yahya here became the director of Iraq Revenue Watch which uh, is part of the Open Society's Revenue Institute which he and George Soros will talk about and now he's going to be director of Middle East Revenue Watch, which will be based at the center, so they're going to talk about that too. The second inspiration was actually George's book and his speech here last year, because in the last chapter of his book, I was very taken um, with his chapter on energy crisis, that we need to think about the problem of how to secure oil supplies the problem of climate change and the problem of resource curse as a single interrelated problem which we call energy crisis. Um, And um, this is something I've been giving a lot of thought to subsequently. It seemed to me very important insight. And this is really what I want to talk about a bit today. I mean, I think the problem is that energy security tends to be Oh, sorry, am I not speaking? Is that better? I have to bend down a little bit to get into it. Um, Energy security tends to be seen as a very traditional geopolitical problem. In fact, you hear terms like the great game or the scramble for Africa. If you read the uh, summit communique of the last NATO meeting, it talks in a very traditional way about how are we going to secure our oil supplies from disruption by a possible threat. So it's seen as a problem for the West, uh, and it's seen as a traditional geopolitical problem. On the other hand, climate change is seen as a global problem, something that's a problem for all of us, but it tends to be seen as a technical problem. Uh, I think that's what's so important about what Nick Stern has done is that he's drawn our attention to the fact that it's an economic um, problem as well as a technical problem. But I think what we want to do is to draw attention to the fact that it's not just an economic or a technical problem, it's also a political and social problem. And then finally, the resource curse, which refers to the political and economic effects of dependence on oil rents, on oil revenues in producer countries. And um, what you find about that is that that tends to be treated as a domestic problem of the oil producing countries. It's all about governance in the oil producing countries. Yet actually, it's also a global problem. (laughs) It's a global problem not only because it's our dependence on oil that has really distorted uh, the economies and societies of the countries that produce oil, but it's also a global problem because many of the oil producers are problems for the world. Uh, There's a tendency for oil, and I'm going to explain that on Yaya too more, for oil-dependent countries either to be authoritarian ought to be very weak. And um, so you think about countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, (coughs) Russia, Venezuela. They are part of our global problems. So the kind of conclusion that we reach is that we need to treat all of these problems together. We need to treat them as global problems, and we need to treat them as political and social problems as well as technical problems. And um, I think one very obvious connection between all three problems is that they have the same solution. And the solution is reducing the oil dependence. That's the solution to all of these three problems. Um, But our argument, and that's in a way the argument that we develop in the Oil Wars book, is how to achieve that depends not only on a global cooperative approach Uh, but also on a political approach. and We have to really think about how to do it. And if you like, what we're doing today is setting out not so much our answers, but our questions, our research agenda for what we have to start thinking about. Um, So our idea really is to reconceptualize energy security, not as a geopolitical threat, the threat that, say, Russia... Uh, will disrupt, Russia will use our dependence on Russian oil as a political lever in Europe. That's the way it's traditionally conceived. But rather as the way in which global political risks, the risks of conflict, the risks of authoritarianism are associated with these three interrelated issues. And what i want to do now is just draw your attention to two challenges one is the challenge of resource conflict there is a lot of discussion now about the way in which climate change might be associated with resource conflicts in a recent speech the former foreign secretary margaret beckett said that darfur is the first climate change conflict Um, now, I actually think that this is a bit simplistic. Resources can re- resource shortage can lead to both cooperation and conflict. If you take the example of a tsunami, which we don't know whether... I mean, probably it was not caused by climate change, but it was the kind of natural disaster that we can expect more of in future. Actually, the result of the tsunami was that the two major conflicts... In Sri Lanka and in Achi, there was an initial impulse to come together and solve those conflicts in the aftermath of the tsunami. So natural disasters, resource shortages, can be opportunities as well as causes of conflict. I think our argument is that whether it's an opportunity or a danger has to do with the underlying social relationships. And that's where the second point comes in, which is really the theme of our book, which is the way the resource curse, the nature of the resource curse and what it means for social relations in producing countries. Briefly, for those who are not familiar with it, let me say very briefly what people mean when they say resource curse, and and I think George Soros are gonna develop this further. Uh, The fall of the Spanish empire is often attributed to the resource curse. The Spaniards started increasing their income from gold And this led to the decay of the rest of the economy. A term that's often used by economists is Dutch disease. As you increase your revenue from oil, the exchange rate appreciates, and your other manufacturing or agricultural sector, which depends on exports, decline. But actually, economists have thought of lots of tools for dealing with this problem. And the real issue is, why don't oil states deal with the problem? And that, I think, has to do with the political nature of the resource curse. Um, And and this is where our Oil Wars book comes in. I mean, one of the very interesting things that have come out of statistical studies is that there is a very strong correlation between oil dependence and conflict. You can't find the same correlation between resource dependence in general, but it is with oil dependence. And our argument is why it is about why this is so. Fundamentally, oil dependent states are raunchy states. They're states that depend on oil revenue rather than taxation. They don't require a social contract with their citizens to survive. Um, and what you find is that when oil rents are high, you get states which survive on a combination of patronage, distributing funds to loyal networks, of repression and a sort of nationalist rhetoric. Typical in that way would be Russia, Iran, Venezuela. Uh, But at a certain point, competition for patronage tends to surpass the available rents, and at that point, the uh, networks start competing and you degenerate into a kind of sectarian conflict. The networks often involve a combination of oil traders, enterprise management managers and ethnic and religious extremists. And eventually uh, it can degenerate into a kind of predatory political economy in which people gain access to the oil rents through fighting and they finance their fighting through oil rents. And this is what emerged very strongly from all of our case studies. I'm not going to tell you all about all of them, but for instance in Colombia it was absolutely fascinating the way different warring factions use different mechanisms for access to oil rent from blowing up pipelines to taking oil workers hostage to controlling municipalities where oil was based. A whole lot of, through smuggling, all these different mechanisms operate. In Nigeria, we found, in the Nigerian Delta, that this sort of rent-seeking culture then eventually co-opts civil society and even make those who are opposed to this kind of culture somehow accomplices. So um, so oil wars, and this is where I'm going to end really, Um, Oh, and oil wars of this kind are really the main risk, it seems to me, the biggest risk associated with the energy crisis. Um, You know, to come back to Darfur, I actually think a better explanation for the conflict in Darfur is the character of the Sudanese state. Uh, I think if you want to understand why did the Sudanese state not protect people in Darfur, why did they back the Janjaweed, And what's more, why did the international community fail? Because there was this competition between the West and China in relation to Darfur. All of these factors are very critical in explaining the Darfur conflict. And I think what we feel is that if we don't deal with the issues of energy security and climate change in a cooperative way, this type of war will be spread. Uh, Unilateral or geopolitical approaches simply don't work. If the aim, for example, of the war in Iraq was to secure oil from Iraq, it was completely self-defeating. Iraq is torn apart by the kind of predatory war that I'm describing, and oil production is well below even pre-war levels. And I think even more, I would argue, that the growing interconnection between conflicts in the Middle East has to do with the raunchy character of those states. Even the non-oil-producing states have become raunchy states because they're either dependent on assistance from other oil states or on remittances from people working in the Gulf and working in the oil sector. Um, and I think what we're seeing in the Middle East is really a signal of the kinds of dangers that we face. So, to conclude, we need to see resource curse as a global problem. We need to deal with problems of governance, transparency, and accountability, which Yahya and George Soros are going to talk about. But we also need them to be part of a multilateral effort to deal with the interrelated issues of the energy crisis.
0: Thank you, Mary. Uh, The next speaker is uh, Nicholas Stern, who has done many things uh, in his uh, distinguished academic and non-academic career. He has uh, taught at Warwick and, of course, at ISC as a professor, then uh, advised the uh, EBRD and the World Bank as chief economist. Then he came back and became part of the permanent civil service, head of the uh, economic service of the government. Wrote the Africa report, uh, although he will deny that. Uh, and of course, he's most famous for his latest contribution on the climate change. Nick is a man of a variety of talents and great interest. The name Stern report belies the fact that the man himself is an absolute uh, pussycat, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't prevent him from having. Sharp analytical clause. Next turn.
2: It's just as well our friendship goes back 40 years, but I'll see you afterwards. <laughs> um, I want to say something about the links between the phenomenon of the accumulation of greenhouse gases and energy and conflict something about the links between the instruments we might use to control the accumulation of greenhouse gases and the l- links between those instruments and energy and conflict. And finally, I'll say a few words um, which are about the opposite of conflict, is how you put a global collaborative deal together to have some chance of um, dealing with the flows of greenhouse gases, which, if left under business... Yes. Um, can you, hear me, can you hear me at this uh, volume? Or do you want me to... Louder? Okay. Look, um, if, if I lapse into inaudibility or incoherence, can you gesticulate in a, uh, a pretty powerful way? So I'm going to talk about the phenomenon and the links between uh, energy and conflict, about the instruments we might use uh, to attack that phenomenon and the links between the links between those instruments and energy and conflict. And I'll say something about the constructive side, the collaborative side, the opposite of conflict, how do we put a global deal together in a way that might stick? Well, first, let me say something very briefly about the numbers. I'm not doing fancy science here, just a bit of mental arithmetic. We argue in the review that you as a world, we as a world, ought to be looking for a stabilization of the stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere somewhere between 450 and 550 Uh, Parts per million of CO2 equivalent. It's the stock that traps the heat, that warms up the earth, that causes the climate change that brings the crises in terms of storms, floods, droughts, and sea level rise. So it's the stock that's causing the problem, it's the flow each year that builds up into the stock. CO2 in particular stays around for a very long time, so once the stock is built up, it's very difficult to run it backwards. Why 450 to 550? 550 as a stock would give you eventually a temperature increase um, relative to pre-industrial times with a 50-50 probability of being above or below 3 degrees centigrade. In other words, 3 degrees centigrade uh, would be your best estimate if you did stabilize, but there's a big probability distribution here it's a 50-50 chance of being either side. Significant probability if you stabilized at 550 of being above 4 degrees centigrade and a small probability under some models of being above 5 degrees centigrade. Those are very serious risks just on 550. 5 degrees centigrade is an enormous number. The difference between where we are now and where we were in the last uh, ice age 10 to 12,000 years ago is 5 degrees centigrade. Most of, uh, north, most of uh, Canada, some of North America and much of Northern Europe would have been under uh, a few hundred kilometres of ice. It changes the way in which uh, you can live. The change, it changes where you can live. So those limits which we suggest in the review are quite, as it were, risky already, 450 to 550, um, and many people would argue that 550 is much too high a target for stabilisation. Why did we suggest that range? Well, partly because of the risks I've just described, but also from where we start. We start at 430 parts per million of CO2 equivalent, already very close to that range, and we're adding about two and a half parts per million a year. And that two and a half parts per million a year that we're adding is going up very quickly. Within 10 years, we'll be past 450. If we go on under business as usual for 30 or 40 years, with that two and a half we're adding each year increasing, we could easily add another 100 parts per million in 30 or 40 years, taking us up already very close to the top of that range. So it'll be tough to bring it back below 550 parts per million. Even tougher to bring it back down to 500 or so, even though there's a strong case that we should. So that's the kind of argument we put together for this kind of stabilization range. We're already very close. Being at the top of the range would be very risky. It'll be tough to get much below that, but there's a strong case for trying. So that is a very crude summary of the kind of logic of that target range. Now, what does that tell us, then, about... Um, energy. It tells us and the uh, carbon emissions. It tells us that carbon emissions have to peak so, turning to the flow now, away from the stock it tells us that carbon emissions have to peak within 20 years and then start to decline pretty sharply after that. What does that tell us about oil and coal? The key polluting oil, gas and coal, the key polluting hydrocarbons. It tells us that there's way more hydrocarbons under the earth that are easily accessible than the earth can possibly tolerate. It tells us that running out of oil, for example, in some time in the future, cannot be the saviour of the planet from the point of view of um, climate change. It has to be direct policy. There's no natural shortage market effect that's going to solve this problem. There's a lot of oil, and there's a great deal of coal. So the the energy shortage or the hydrocarbon energy shortage route out of this one is simply not a route out of this one and it's very important to be clear about that the second thing I want to draw attention to is the nature of the kind of conflict that could result for climate change and in my view it's in large measure about population movement if we started to see temperature increases as we could under business as usual rising to 3, 4, 5 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial times populations would start to move. And when populations start to move, then conflict is a real problem. This round of globalization that we've seen in the last 50-60 years is very different from the globalization that we saw before the First World War. Before the First World War, we saw a great deal of population movement associated with globalization. It's basically much less now. I think the world has become less good at dealing with population movement than it was, and I see no reason why uh, we can assume it's likely to get better. So if you run this forward 50 or 100 years, then I think it's population movement that will really be a very serious cause of conflict. Just as in the last ice age, any life had to be much closer uh, to the equator, it couldn't really be in northern uh, latitudes if you're talking about the northern hemisphere. In this case, if climate change runs forward, there have to be significant movements of population away from uh, the equator. So I think running forward 50, 100 years that climate change as a potential source of conflict is a very real one. Now, what about the instruments? Well, as economists, and whether or not you're economists, as long as you believe in incentives, the price of energy and the price of carbon specifically, if we adopt taxing of carbon or carbon trading, has to be a big part of the solution. Not the only part. There should be direct uh, regulations and standards as well. But you can think of those as, in some measure, as being implicit prices. You pay a bit more for your equipment um, uh, when your equipment, uh, but your equipment takes out some of the CO two it might otherwise have emitted. That's an implicit price. So prices, standards um, are going to be a big part of the incentive to cut back on carbon. Now, what effect will that have on oil prices? If you take oil. Obviously there are more to it than just oil. But what effect would that have on oil prices? Essentially what we've got is a commodity with a great deal of rents. And it's quite possible that this kind of price policy wouldn't have a great deal of influence on the price of oil which we face as consumers, but would be passed back to the oil producers and thus reduce rents. So it seems to me that those who now have those resource rents should be arguing not that climate change is no problem what's all this fuss about as some of them do they should be arguing for very rapid technological progress in carbon capture and storage so that the commodity they produce can continue to be used whether that be for oil or for um, for coal or gas of course with carbon capture and storage is important too so I think when you think about the kinds of instruments that could be used you see a common interest actually in developing carbon capture and storage mechanisms so that the hydrocarbons can continue to be used to the benefit of the energy security and of those who are using it and to the benefit of the, uh, those who live on the rents. That story has not yet come, I think. People still see it as a conflict, as it were, between the energy, uh, uh, users, and, sorry, the energy producers and those who worry about climate change. Actually, there's quite a strong common interest there. There are other possible conflicts, though, as well. There are possible conflicts between, um, for land between biofuels and other uh, uses of that land, for example, for food and forests. That's why I think it's so important that we move to the second generation of biofuels, uh, things that can, crops essentially can grow on marginal land, land which is hardly used, in, uh, for example, in southern Africa or around the Sahara or in Central Asia. And if we develop... these crops that can grow on much rougher land, whether it be biodiesel in the form of Jatropha or um, switchgrass and the use of uh, that kind of uh, product for um, stegnosic ethanol, if we can't develop those second generation biofuels, then I think we will have a genuine conflict if we go intensively for biofuels between food and uh, energy. But I don't think we have to have that conflict if we push strongly for this second generation of biofuels. But they're only going to be part of the answer. It's going to be carbon capture and storage. It's going to be biofuels. It's going to be solar. It's going to be wind. It's going to be wave. It's going to be nuclear. There's going to be a whole combination of these things with different countries choosing uh, different things. But I do think that we have to look at biofuels very carefully, but when we do, I think we can avoid, with the right kind of biofuels the kind of problem that I described and many others have described, but we have to do a lot of work to get there. There's, uh, we have to prove that these things <coughs> work, prove what their uh, land-using and water-using consequences are likely to be. Now, let me move, or let me use one link to move to my last point about collaboration. If you think about a fixed stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we should not go beyond a certain level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere then there is, of course, conflict for that resource. That is a resource which is the maximum amount, as it were, we think that the, the, uh, the planet should be prepared to take over time of the CO2. Well, who emits that? So there's a potential conflict uh, between those who, say, our poor countries trying to grow and those who are rich countries who have already filled up or close to filled up the atmosphere with the stock that it can stand. So that could be a potential conflict, and indeed in a very narrow sense it is a conflict because there's a a finite resource, the amount of greenhouse gases that the atmosphere can take and there's some conflict between who uh, uses that up, the little that remains from what's been used up already but I think we can turn that and should turn that, and this is the last (coughs) part of what I want to say, into a much more collaborative global deal I think there's a very powerful case that if policy is good that growth, energy security, and climate responsibility can live very happily together. There's no conflict, if you want to translate this into the terms of the European Union, there should be no conflict between those um, parts of the European Commission that are concerned with uh, growth um, and innovation, those parts that are concerned with energy security, and those parts which are concerned with the environment. You've got a different DG for each one of those in the European uh, community, And there was quite a lot of, co- as it were, uh, arm wrestling between the three. We can't give up growth or climate. Um, we can't give up, you know, we've got to look at energy security. Is that in conflict with growth? Those are the kinds of questions that are being asked. And one of the things that I hope we contributed in the report was try to, sh- to show that that is, with good policy, an artificial horse race. You can have good low-carbon growth, growth with climate responsibility. And these are lots of opportunities which we and many others have pointed to. And a lot of the renewable sources of energy make you less reliable on imports. So moving to renewables can um, make you more energy secure. The only difference, as it were, the only potential conflict between those three things, which most governments declare for, are, um, would be uh, coal. Because coal is underground in many of the countries and does make you more energy secure, and that's why carbon capture and storage for coal is so important, because it's the missing link, if you like, between um, uh, the story, which is the missing link in the story, which brings those three things, uh, growth, climate responsibility, and energy security uh, together. So again, I think there are some policy measures, both technology and pricing, that we can see that can help resolve that kind of uh, conflict. Another collaborative part of the global deal is respect for what other people are doing. I, mean, let me, I spend a lot of time in China explaining to them what the United States is doing in a positive way, and a lot of time in the United States explaining what China is doing in a positive way. I won't dwell on that, but just let me draw attention to one or two things that China is doing. China reforesting. It's not uh, deforesting. China has an export tax on energy-intensive industries. China has uh, very heavy taxes on um, SUVs in, uh, in Beijing. Um, China has a five-year target in this 11th five-year plan, which began about uh, a year ago, to cut the energy-to-output ratio by 20%. China is starting to get involved in a heavy way in all this story. But at the same time, China is opening one or two, depending on your source, coal-fired power stations every week. So there are good things, but also some big problems. Now, you can run through the good things about the United States in this area, as well as the problems there. Now. California has an 80% reduction target by, uh, by, by 2050. A lot of important cities in the United States, some companies are going uh, carbon neutral and so on. There's big progress there. Um, there is a, you know, obviously a little difficulty with the current administration, but um, I and many others have a, a great admiration for fixed and presidencies. The, so you have to see the way in which those arguments are going. In different countries. And if we're to build collaboration, you have to recognize the good things that other countries are doing, as well as the difficult things, whilst at the same time recognizing that we as a world are moving far too slowly on this one. But it's about building collaboration, and building collaboration involves recognition. And finally, I'd want to emphasize in terms of building collaboration, there's a gross injustice in this problem. It's the rich countries that are responsible for most of the stock of greenhouse gases that are now there in, uh, in the atmosphere and it's the poor countries that will suffer earliest and hardest. That uh, inequity, it seems to me, means that there is a strong argument, both in terms of equity and in terms of efficiency, of financial incentives to poor countries to come into the global deal. And that, in my view, the only way I think I can see that working is um, with very strong emissions reductions targets in which countries creating a demand for emissions reduction and uh, a much better system of supply of emissions reduction from poor countries, which allows it to work in a wholesale way. That supply and demand for emissions reduction could get the kind of financial flows together uh, for, uh, from rich countries to poor countries, which could give the incentive to cement the, the global deal. That together with um, share, developing and sharing of technology. So I think there are a lot of potential conflicts in this story, but I wanted to end with uh, a very brief description of how we might to start putting that global deal together. I think it is possible, and uh, if it's not possible, we're in real trouble. Thanks very much.
0: I forgot to add that Nick is now the Patel professor of economics at LSE, and he'll head the India Observatory. Now, our next speaker is Yahya Said, who is a research fellow at the Center for Study of Global Governance, and he's also the director of uh, uh, North African and Middle, Middle East uh, uh, Revenue Watch. Yahya, uh, Yahya's family left Iraq in 1979 when Saddam came to power, and Yahya has a distinction of having written had contributed to a minority rights group report about what will happen in Iraq after the fall of Saddam before, before March 2003. He predicted more or less in very good detail all the various sectarian conflicts and, and school settling and things like that which are going to happen. Uh, the problem with the social science is not that social scientists can't predict. The problem is that nobody takes it seriously. <laughs> but, yes, yeah, yeah, Saeed, thank you.
3: problem in uh, talking with such illustrious companies that you have to try to upstate them somehow. Um,
0: Can you get closer to the mic?
3: Yes. um, I'm going to try to speak about the two occasions for this event, which is the the publication of the Oil Wars book um, as well as the the project of uh, uh, on energy security in the Middle East that will be uh, managed jointly by...
1: I think you have to bend
0: down. You have to bend
1: down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're like a chair. You can sit down. You should go.
3: Um, Yeah, I'm going to speak about the two occasions for this event, the Oil Wars book, the publication finally of the Oil Wars book, um, and the project on energy security in the Middle East that we plan to launch here um, together with the Revenue Watch Institute. Um, And um, I think... uh, to speak about energy security, the best illustration for speaking about energy security uh, in the Middle East is the picture in front of you. Um, the red line was drawn by a certain gentleman called uh, Galust uh, Gulbenkian. Uh, was drawn in 1928, and it essentially del- delineates the concession area for the Turkish Petroleum Company, uh, which was a joint venture of the uh, predecessors of BP, Shell. Uh, Exxon and uh, Total um, and this was uh, a, 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 that was the basis really for, the, uh, for uh, the process of state formation that took place in that region uh, uh, in the following years uh, many of the nations in that region, uh, the modern nation states that were created in that region uh, were in essence vehicles for uh, contracting and for getting the oil out Um, uh, so are all the conflicts in the region and the wars and the problems that we face in the Middle East um, are they all about oil this is a very uh, popular perception Um, I had the opportunity to work over the last year with uh, um, Iraqi uh, experts and officials on the drafting of the oil law. Um, as it happens that law is, is, is 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 a step forward for the Iraqi political process. It has very strong transparency uh, provisions um, and accountability provisions. It has, it moves away from the out-of-control decentralization envisioned in the Constitution um, and sets the stage for a more coherent management of the oil sector for the benefit of all Iraqis. Um, I was very proud of that achievement and I called my mother, who is a bona fide Iraqi nationalist, to tell her about that. And she told me, ah, it's a horrible law. It gives all the oil to the multinational oil companies. And I said, no, there's nothing in the law to support that. There's absolutely nothing to support that. Did you read it? I don't need to read it. Any <laughs> law passed under the American occupation in Iraq is bound to give the oil to the Americans because this is what the war was all about. Now, this is not a ridiculous argument. This is actually a very strong argument. And most of the reaction to the Iraqi oil law, uh, since it's, it, show, it saw the light in February, was like that and it's, it's amazing the consensus around that position. Um, now, the war in Iraq was probably about oil, but it wasn't simply, it could not be reduced simply to an American attempt to control the Iraqi territory or to, control, to establish a puppet regime in Iraq that will hand over the oil. The relationship is much more complex, and this is what we tried to explore in the oil war book. Uh, there are many ways and many channels through which um, oil can influence conflict. And Mary touched on, on some of them. I'll try to uh, touch on some of the other. Now, first, before I go to that, why is this important? Why is it important to, to move on from a sort of a simplistic view on the nature of resource conflict? Um, as it happens at this geopolitical view of, uh, about resource conflict, which is shared uh, both by opponents of the war and by proponents of it. Uh, at the end of the day, this, this U.S. administration does share some of the Positions, as the Cheney Energy Task Force indicated, of trying to secure supplies of oil through force if necessary. Um, The problem with this approach is that it exacerbates conflict, and it reduces the security of oil supplies. As Mary indicated, Iraq has been out of the market, and indeed, Iraq has been discounted as an oil producer in oil prices today. There is no no one is counting on the continuation or the growth of Iraqi oil supplies. Iraq is is considered to be an irrelevant producer at the point, although it controls a significant proportion of, of the world's remaining oil reserves. So this approach, this geopolitical approach has, has consequences, and it has dire consequences for stability of oil supplies and the stability of states and oil region. Um, there are many other channels, and, and Mary discussed some of them, and these are the, the ones that we go through in detail in the book. Uh, one of them is the petro-state argument, uh, which, looks, which, uh, which looks at the relationship. Of dependence on our rents and the nature of the state as it forms. Uh, the other is the one about greed and grievance, uh, which is the competition by non state actors for, uh, for resource rents. Um, these three approaches or three levels of relationship uh, reflect uh, three ways of competing for resource rents. If you like, the geopolitical approach is a competition between superpowers for resource rents and between nations. Um, the petro-state approach looks at the competition for the state to capture the state as a way of capturing resource rent within resource-dependent countries. And then the war economy and the greed and grievance arguments looks at competition between non-state actors uh, for the capture of resource rents. Now, these are not alternative approaches. Indeed, what we find out in the book is that they are actually linked to each other and they form a resource-dependent cycle. The time of that map, of that chart that you look at, was a moment in the cycle where actually competition for resource rents was state building, was stabilizing. It was the end of World War One, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and that deal to divide the spoils, if you like, of that region led to the emergence uh, of states in that region. Indeed, that process was not negative all- altogether. The years following that, that deal in 28 saw so some of the real state building that took place in Iraq, the building of robust machinery of government. Uh, A petroleum board was established that took over 70% of oil revenues and had a very restrictive use to prevent oil from crowding out agriculture and to use oil revenues in a way that builds the fertility of the land, as they said at that time. Many other states in the regions were were created in that time as well. Um, as As resource rent starts to flow, though, it becomes very difficult to control this process. What happened in Iraq, for example, is immediately nationalism grew on the claim that Iraq should capture more of the resource rents that it generates and have more sovereignty over how these rents are used. So the share of oil revenues that went into the uh, reconstruction board was progressively reduced uh, from 70% to 50 to 20 Ultimately, the monarchy was toppled and Iraq moved on to nationalize oil. And, and moved into what we call the petrostate stage, which is what Mary described, took place in Venezuela, Iran, and elsewhere. And we are seeing a resurgence of that, of that model, uh, on the back of uh, a higher oil prices. And the petrostate uh, element, you see that under the pressure of, under the pressure from the society itself, from groups within society to capture resource rent, the state resorts to a dual policy of repression and patronage. The state's relation with the, with the public is built on two elements, a stick and a carrot. Um, there is no that complex uh, social contract. But even that is not a sustainable model because what you see is, A, it depends on high, high oil rents, high prices. Venezuela can afford what it's doing today because of the, of the level of oil prices. Iran, even with a high level of oil prices, is barely managing to sustain social peace as we see from the, from the oil and gas riots. So the petro-state model becomes less sustainable. It also becomes less sustainable under globalization because it's much more difficult to keep uh, to sustain an authoritarian regime, and and the, and the margin of freedom for state action in the economic area, particularly, becomes smaller and smaller. So what you have is you have these countries, states lapsing into the predatory stage and into the state collapse stage. Um, and th- the predatory stage is where you get when you get these senile states, Iraq on the eve of the war in 2003 was a particularly senile state. The the ideology has been stripped down. Uh, There is not enough resources for patronage or for repression. And the state is barely holding together uh, on the basis of of the past uh, construction. And that was the moment when the United States chose to invade Iraq under a model of an old war, under a model of a geopolitical competition for oil. That was the moment when the United States thought it could invade Topple the dictator; the rest of the state remains intact. Put somebody else on top, and the flow of oil rents and all the, uh, the, the flow of the oil uh, continues to to uh, keep on. But what happened is you had state collapse, and this is what the situation we're having now. We had situations of state collapse in oil in many oil-dependent states, and, and close to state collapse. Uh, even Algeria flirted uh, briefly with that with that situation in the 80s and 90s. Angola. Um, uh, uh, large swaths of Russia Um, uh, in the early 90s, particularly Chechnya, which we look at in this book. Now, what is interesting, though, about oil is that it also plays a mitigating role in conflict. And what we have seen since the 90s is that many countries have stepped back from the brink, have stepped back from the situation of state collapse. That has something to do with the nature of oil and the need to extract those rents. There is a need, as opposed to other resources, that could be extracted with incomplete lawlessness and a complete collapse of state authorities such as diamonds, for example. Oil needs a modicum of a rule of law. It's a long-term investment. It's a large investment. You need someone to sign a contract with. This is why, for example, this is part of the reason why many of the states on this map were created. They were created so that companies could have a party to get a concession from. Um, and this is why you, have, you, had, you kept a modicum of state existence in many of these oil countries to keep the oil flowing. In the case of countries like Azerbaijan, you need a coordination with many countries, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Turkey, to get the oil out. So there's, again, there's, a, there's an incentive for stability, uh, for, for a minimum st- uh, state of, uh, of order to prevent, to keep the oil rents and oil flowing. Um, some of the efforts you see in Iraq today, the oil law I was referring to, some of the progress being done on constitutional review is part of that process. It's a process of trying to step back from the brink because if things continue to go on as they are now, there will be zero oil rent. There will be no oil flowing. And so the same factors that contributed, that conspired to destroy the state um, are conspiring to try to put Humpty, Humpty together again. Um now, of course, we can go ad nauseum into that cycle, which is all very painful. And so, what, what you know, what are the options and what are the ways to get out of this? And Mary alluded to some of the, and Mary and Nicholas and, and the other speakers alluded to some of the co- collaborative approaches, the holistic approaches, trying to look on those dynamics within the context of globalization and climate change. Of course, what is most important inside these countries is to try to build constituencies, and sustain constituencies, that will opt for better policies that will hold the government to account and that's part of the work that the Revenue Watch Network tries to do and this is part of the work that we're trying to uh, explore in the Middle East. Now so far that the, and, and, and George will speak uh, more about, about the role of the Revenue Watch and, and, uh, and, and the importance of transparency and accountability in preventing this seemingly inevitable curse um, uh, that Movement that has has seen dramatic growth over the last uh, ten years um, has been has been uh, conspicuously absent in the Middle East, and there are many reasons for that. One of them is, of course, authoritarianism, and the difficulty of having access to many of these countries. But there are also other reasons, and uh, 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 including the fact that uh, that uh, many of the oil producing countries in the Middle East are are capital are rich in capital. They don't need they don't believe that they need much from the outside world. There is no to be had, and so therefore it's very important to augment the message, to augment the approach in order to work in those countries. And indeed the region, the Gulf region, has offers a, a unique examples um, and interesting examples of reform and development over the past years. There have clearly been a process of learning, there has clearly been a different approach to utilizing oil windfalls this time around from the, from the boom of the 70s that needs to be looked at in a more serious way. But most importantly, we need to look look at the issues of energy security from their perspective as well. They need need to be able to see in the region the benefits of looking at energy security, of looking at climate change, of looking at transparency from their own interests as well as from the interest of the stability of oil markets uh, worldwide. As Mary suggested, if if we are all thinking about weaning the world off the addition to oil, it's very important that this is linked with weaning the oil producers from their addiction to oil rents. Uh, Nicholas Stern spoke about the fact that carbon tax will, will uh, reduce the rents accrued to oil-producing countries. Uh, if, if you speak to them, they will tell you that this is a diversion of those rents, that these are rents that, are, instead of going to the oil producers, are going to the consumer nations. So there needs to be a collaborative framework to deal with that. Um, otherwise, the, uh, the it will, will be very difficult to engage uh, those countries in this debate. Of course, there is no uh, standstill on this. Abu Dhabi is currently involved uh, through the Masdar Fund, uh, together with uh, other groups with Credit Suisse and Consensus here in the UK, in investing in carbon capture and in new technologies. So there is efforts in the region going on to... Uh, to, to uh, not only improve the use of uh, oil revenues, but also to explore these issues. And these are some of the areas that we'll look at. But of course, at the core, uh, the work in the region will be about looking at the relationship of globalization, conflict, and the resource curse uh, in the context of the region, and trying to promote and build some of the coalitions and civil society groups that work for, uh, uh, for better governance of oil and particularly for transparency and accountability in the management of oil revenues. Thank you.
0: Jot Soros is an LSE alumnus. i start with that first. Because it was at LSE that he absorbed the teaching of Sir Karl Popper. Who was a great LSE icon and one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, and it is that vision of an open society, and and this idea also about the importance of unpredictability, the, the surprising turn of events, which has guided George Soros in his life. He has written some marvelous books. They're a very very good read. He's a he's a deep thinker about philosophical questions, and he's also made some money along the side, like George Soros.
4: Well, in uh, trying to discuss the uh, global energy crisis, I think we, we have taken on uh, too, too big a task. So I'll, I'll confine my remarks to where I am, where I've been personally involved. That's, and that is in uh, trying to deal with the resource curse. Uh, and My involvement is really quite recent. Uh, it was uh, started really in 2003. When um, one of the NGOs that we support, uh, Global Witness, came up with an idea. Global Witness is a small uh, think tank uh, activist uh, group. They were the ones who uh, dealt with the, uh, who um, um, exposed the diamond industry, the blood diamonds, which led to the Kimberley process. Um, And they wanted to, uh, their idea was to get the oil companies to disclose uh, the payments they make to the various governments. Then uh, those payments could be uh, uh, added together and the governments could be held accountable for how they uh, spend the money. So uh, this would uh, really get at the the heart of of the resource curse, which is basically an agency problem because the resources belong to the people, but the governments or the people uh, who control those resources tend to use it for their personal benefit and not for the benefit of the people to whom those resources uh, uh, belong. So... (coughs) we, s- we uh, launched a, a campaign called Publish What You Pay, which got a lot of support from civil society uh, be- and because it really uh, sort of uh, played into the sentiment against multinational corporations. And the multinational corporations are very sen- uh, sensitive because they sell to the public, so they are, there, is, there is a point of leverage for civil society. But actually, I could see right from the beginning that that was not uh, where we need to go. This is just a stepping stone, because in actual fact, you can't get all the oil companies uh, to disclose, because not all oil companies are public. Uh, the, the national companies involved and private companies. But we were very fortunate because even before the end of the year, uh, the British government uh, took on the case and brought together uh, governments, uh, companies, and civil society, so, uh, uh, establishing something very, very easy to remember, wonderful, simple, uh, 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 called Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. It's, it's uh, easy to remember, and I'm sure you have all heard about it. Uh, but actually, uh, it, has, uh, it has really produced some, some very interesting results, because it, uh, it required all companies Uh, to uh, to disclose, not just oil, all all, uh, uh, mining companies as well, the payments they make. And it it required uh, uh, governments to um, uh, provide an account of the monies they receive. So it established certain standards of of transparency. And uh, uh, we have supported civil society in monitoring the performance both of corporations and and governments. And that led to the establishment of revenue watch uh, institutes in countries like Azerbaijan and and, uh, Kazakhstan. And for instance, in in Kazakhstan, um, I think it was Global Witness or some other organization, that uh, established that there was a very very large uh, bank account in Geneva, in the name of the president of uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, and when that was disclosed, the president said, "Well, I'm holding this money uh, for, for 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 the for, for the country," and uh, and actually established uh, a, a, a an oil fund. So there is now an oil fund, and that money is in fact uh, now uh, um, uh, managed in a a transparent way, so it's quite quite an accomplishment. Global Witness was also very good in in tracing all the various uh, uh, nefarious transactions that were taking place in Angola. uh, but perhaps uh, the country where the greatest results w- were achieved was in Nigeria, uh, where President Obasanjo, in his, uh, in, in, in his second term, uh, when he was re-elected, <coughs> made this a, a priority and brought back a, uh, an official, of, a, a Nigerian official of the World Bank to be the chief uh, economics minister uh, and uh, introduced transparency uh, engaged the accountants and auditors to look at the uh, the uh, payments that the country receives and there were some low low ha- uh, hanging fruit that could be picked in increasing those Uh, payments, and then they they published the uh, monies that they received, and where, uh, since Nigeria is a a federal state, most of the money is passed through to the states. So what the various states and local governments received, and that, the the foundation uh, published that in newspapers, so people could ask, where is the money? Uh, because a lot of that money had uh, disappeared, and so out of that came a number of impeachments of, of of governors. So really, uh, in, in the space of four years, uh, a great progress was made. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we are all human, and uh, President Obasanjo didn't do so well in uh, in. Um, uh, arranging for free elections, but uh, the, the elections that have taken place are anything but uh, but acceptable. Uh, but nevertheless, I am hopeful that the gains that have been made will will not be lost in, in Nigeria, and in other countries, in Azerbaijan, for instance, which is not a paragon of virtue as far as democracy is concerned. Because the lead government was British Petroleum, and I must say that uh, under Lord Brown, uh, British Petroleum was genuinely devoted uh, to uh, transparency. Um, the, The receipt of the oil revenues is transparent, and there is an oil fund, which, uh, which again, has very transparent accounts, although there's a lot to be desired about the way the money, once once it comes out of the oil fund, how how the money is then spent. Um, (coughs) In many many countries, the Revenue Watch Institute uh, could uh, make some contribution helping the governments uh, with information. So, for instance... In, in Mongolia, uh, some consultants, George uh, Stiglitz and some lawyers, uh, have uh, um, helped to, to shape the mining laws uh, which are now in force. In Liberia, when Alan Shirley Johnson was elected president, one of the first things she wanted to do was to renegotiate the contracts. and. Uh, um, uh, in fact, uh, some lawyers provided pro bono assistance. As a result, the, um, a major contract with Mittal uh, was renegotiated, which will help the development of Liberia. Uh, so a, a lot of this in, in, uh, in uh, Timor, uh, East Timor, the Norwegian government uh, provided... Uh, Uh, support to the uh, Timorese government in negotiating with the oil companies. And actually, the the Norwegian government is one of the supporters of the Revenue Watch Institute, which has now been established as an independent institute, separate from my foundation network, and is is supported by other foundations uh, as well. So this, to me, has been actually... A, a considerable a remarkable success story because a relatively short period of time a lot of progress uh, was made now uh, there's a lot more that that can be done and will be done in establishing standards but it's not going to be that easy uh, the, I think that the major uh, problem now in is the competition uh, for oil concessions, and particularly the entry of China uh, into Africa and Central uh, um, Central Asia. Um, I mean, I don't want to be too critical of uh, of China because China is actually bringing a lot of a lot of benefits uh, by uh, uh, First of all, uh, creating a demand uh, for uh, nat- for um, uh, natural resources and providing uh, credit on very uh, easy terms, because they have tremendous reserves, uh, and they are, you know, they, which is invested in in uh, U.S. government bonds yielding five percent, and they are very happy to. Uh, uh, to lend a billion dollars, let's say, to Liberia, uh, yielding for 30 years, uh, yielding less than 5 percent, because they can put that into their reserves just as easily. So uh, they have the resources, and they are willing to put them to use, which is actually a very positive thing. But unfortunately, uh, they are not part of this um, extractive industries transparency initiative, And they believe, uh, they don't believe in interfering in the internal affairs of other uh, states. They resent it when people criticize them, and they don't want to uh, uh, interfere. Uh, And as a result, the pressure that the international financial institutions were able to bring on uh, countries to be more transparent uh, is now relieved. And that, I think, is the the major, um, let's say, hurdle that needs to be overcome uh, to make this uh, uh, revenue watch movement uh, more more uh, uh, successful. And I believe that one can appeal to the Chinese because they, they believe or they've established the doctrine of harmonious development. And it is in their interest, I think, uh, to avoid conflicts. And unfortunately, uh, the policy that they currently uh, 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 follow will and does already uh, um, make them party to conflicts in places like uh, like Sudan now again i don't i don't think one should blame them only because when they wanted to acquire unocal uh, uh, the, uh, the united states uh, stopped uh, that uh, that deal and so they they feel they they that they've been pushed to deal with rogue regimes in africa so i think it's very important to bring them in to the let's say legitimate uh, uh, tra- trading circles of, 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 the, of the world, so that's where we are on, the, on the resource curves, and I say that happens to be one of the more uh, positive aspects of the of, of the global crisis. I mean, it's one where most um, uh, progress has been made. Uh, I can't resist uh, uh, to make one comment on on global warming, uh, where i think having i'm a relatively newcomer to that to that issue but uh uh having looked at it i, I think there is one problem that unless we deal with it very very soon all the other things we are, we are go- we, we can do about global warming will not succeed and that is the increasing use of coal uh, for uh, energy, for electricity generation, because coal is the cheapest, and it's also the most attractive from the point of view of energy security, because uh, China, India, and the United States have very large domestic, uh, uh, resources so as so as, uh, as as nick stern mentioned uh, china now um, completes two new electric power, uh, power stations a week if i if i uh, if i'm correct in that and those power stations once they are built uh, will be uh, producing and will be difficult to shut them down maybe for 40 years uh, to come so if we, if we have to uh, reach a peak in the next 20 years, every year that goes by or every week that goes by, we are adding to that problem for the next 40 years. So that, I think, is the most urgent problem, and it's not getting the, the, the kind of attention uh, 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 that it needs. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, time for a few questions, but all questions have to be short and not summaries of what people have said, whether we agree with it or not. Can I have a few short questions that are the roaming mic? Uh, the gentleman in the middle here. Oh, my name is Cesar. I belong to LSE as well. Uh, first of all, should i should like to say thank you to all the panels. Ask a question. Yes, I must have a question. Um, the first question is to Mr. Nicholas. One uh, question. Uh, the question is, um, who bears the cost of environmental cleanup and uh, what do member countries or businesses do in some regard? Thank you.
2: A gentleman there. Uh, my question is, how can the transfer of funds for payment of carbon, be more transparent and support collaboration rather than conflict.
0: Okay. Anybody else? uh, Gentleman there at the back in the glasses. Yeah.
2: Um, Kindly, what is George Soros' view on the carbon market, carbon trading market? And that's from uh, the chairman of Soros Fund Management.
0: The gentleman there at the top. Soros has spoken about. Sorry,
3: uh, Mr. Mr. Soros had spoken about how resources weren't governed appropriately and they weren't given to the people. I was wondering what you would uh, say about how what he believes if if the youth should play a more important role today, and if so, how. Youth, youth,
0: youth. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Thank I understand you. that. Uh, this this is one final question here in the front. Uh, then we can take them. Around.
3: I wanted to ask um, the panel if anybody was looking at this from a biological point of view that we as humans are like a slime mold we are an entropy creating organism and
0: we need to change the energy source Good. Okay um, let, me, let me start with Nick Stern first because I know he has to go, indeed he has to go away with me so uh, he, he
2: better be quick about this so who, who bears the cost of um, environmental cleanup? Um, it's very clear that development um, in the context of a changing climate is much more costly uh, than development without a changing climate. So you have to build um, your understanding of climate change into your development programmes. To do not to do that would be simply uh, reckless. Um, if development is more, expect- is more expensive, as it will be, because you have to build your roads and your bridges and so on uh, in a more robust way to withstand the higher frequency of you know, droughts and floods and so on, to just to give one example, agriculture, of course, is under a lot of pressure as well from climate change. It becomes more expensive. There is a, uh, a basic obligation, I think, on the rich countries who are responsible for most of the... Um, Uh, 70-75% of the stock of greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere now that responsibility I think um, for the past emissions carries with it a responsibility to help with uh, the adaptation that's going to be necessary Um, in the report um, I was very tempted this is something that was not in the report I was very tempted to say well when we thought as a world of a target appropriately of 0.7 degree 0.7% of GDP at an appropriate level of aid from rich countries, that that was in the context where we didn't understand that the environment, uh, the climate, was changing in the way that it currently is, and therefore we ought to add a bit to that. I and many others have spent the last 30 or 40 years asking for extra aid, uh, and making the arguments for extra aid, which I think are, are very powerful. In 2005, we got quite strong promises at Glen Eagles. In 2002, we got strike quite strong promises in Monterey. So instead of asking for more, we said, deliver on your promises. And if the rich countries do deliver on their promises, then I think that uh, we could go a long way to promoting um, strong development, even in the context of climate change, provided of course we control the degree of climate change through the kinds of measures we were discussing uh, earlier. Um, so that, I think, is a key part of global deal. I've got a in my pocket, eight or nine points in the global deal. That is one of them, but I didn't go through uh, all of them. The way in which uh, uh, carbon um, markets work, the the kind of transfer of funds that takes place, how do we make sure that that's um, transparent and works well, I think is a very important question. It's a market where uh, the rich countries, uh, if you think of that side of the market just for the moment, to keep it uh, concrete, where the rich countries... Um, allow firms in their uh, boundaries to buy carbon reductions elsewhere. Now, they have to, if they're buying reductions elsewhere, be satisfied that those reductions are genuine uh, reductions. Now, this is a market which, like uh, insurance, where somebody you give somebody money now and he that person or company promises to pay you if your house burns down, is a market which requires some kind of of verification. It's a market which requires some kind of regulation. And it is a market where I think that kind of verification and regulation is starting to build. It's a very young market, and I think mistakes were made early on. But unless that market is built up, I simply do not think that the poor countries in the world will see directly enough the incentives to incur the extra costs of um, uh, going for energy generation. Uh, which is carbon clean. With technical progress, the right kind of research, we hope that those costs will be driven down. But George Soros quite rightly emphasized carbon capture and storage for coal. Carbon capture and storage for coal will always be more expensive than not doing carbon capture and storage for coal. So we are going to need those kinds of incentives, so I think it's extremely important to build up the verification and regulation in those markets. In some cases, it's quite easy. You can tell very clearly whether your coal-fired power station does have carbon capture and storage or not. Other kinds of verification are more complex and more difficult. But I do think that we're in the very early stages of building markets. Uh, think of the way in which uh, banking markets and insurance markets were built over hundreds of years. Those are markets where you exchange bits of paper with, I promise you, to X, Y, Z on them, and you need regulation and verification in those markets. And we have to, do, have to build these markets very quickly. There has been um, my, I I was in Cambridge a a week ago, and the guy who taught me um, quantum mechanics and special relativity is still around. He taught me that 40 years ago, and he gave me a long lecture on uh, entropy uh, in this kind of context. So there are people who are thinking that way. Um, My own uh, study of entropy is 40 years ago, and uh, uh, I don't have enough of it at my fingertips to really have used it for the uh, report I'm very interested in, in the uh, in the story um, what I don't believe is in an evolutionary um, approach, I know that wasn't exactly what you said but I don't believe in an evolutionary biological approach to this one all this is happening too fast and it is outside the kind of experience which, under which uh, we evolved as uh, human beings in developed codes of conduct and collaboration and so on uh, we can't, as I said, we can't hope that uh, the oil running out will save us, and I don't think that gradually learning through experience will save us either. We have to look ahead on this one. We have to anticipate uh, because uh, of this flow stock process. By the time, we're needed, by the time that uh, Bangladesh is uh, up to its neck in water, it will be very difficult to turn this whole process back because it will be the stock already in there of greenhouse gases that will stay there and keep the problem going. So there isn't an evolutionary solution to this one. It has to be anticipation and collaboration. But if you've got some entropy models in your pocket, I'd be delighted to uh, have a look.
0: George? Uh, Well, I'd like to
4: largely echo what uh, what Nick said. Uh, uh, There is actually no substitute for coal uh, for electricity generation Uh, other than uh, coal Uh, because coal is the cheapest and the most abundant and even if you have nuclear and all those other things they can't actually uh, make up for the quantity that is currently planned uh, to be uh, used uh, uh, from coal so you do need to take the carbon out of coal and that costs money and therefore, you have to put a price on carbon. Uh, uh, now, uh, carbon tax is unpopular politically. It's uh, certainly in America. it's a, Taxation is a dirty word. Um, and probably here, too. Um, so therefore, cap and trade is much more uh, sort of politically acceptable. And that's the direction it's going. But... Uh, the trouble with uh, with, with um, cap-and-trade is that it's, it, the system can be gained, and actually that's why uh, uh, financial types uh, like me find it very attractive, because it offers great potential profit opportunities. So it would be much more desirable to have um, uh, a carbon tax uh, but it's much more likely that we'll end up with a, a, a cap-and-trade that can be actually converted into a tax by, by auctioning the, um, uh, the licenses rather than distributing them f- uh, uh, free. Now, there was a question about payments in connection with carbon, I, I thought, but I should have mentioned in connection with the resource curse that one of the most promising areas is is, is uh, transparency on, on, on payments and the uh, recent experience uh, in connection with um, uh, terrorism and now most recently uh, with North Korea uh, shows that this and in, in Iran also the financial sanctions have really been biting. So uh, that's a very promising field to pursue in uh, dealing with the resource curse. And as far as adaptation is uh, concerned, I agree that it will be difficult to develop fins uh, by the time uh, <laughs> Bangladesh is underwater.
0: Okay. Uh, I, I, I have to apologize. I have to go. Eric Calder will take over uh, the chairing of this meeting. And I'm going to take Nick's turn with me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
1: Actually, we've we we've, we've reached the end of our um, we've reached the end of the session. In any case, um, in fact, most of the questions were addressed to Nick and to George. Do you want to add anything? I think the only thing I would like to add is that when we think – I should have said that when we think about energy security, I think – I said we're thinking about the global political risks associated uh, with um, energy supply, climate change, and resource curse. But I think we also have to think – and that's something that I think Nick made very clear – about the distribution of access to energy, about the very poor people in very poor places who have no access to energy at all. And that's a critical issue as well. But apart from that, our concern is very much with the conflicts associated with all these things, and this is what we'll continue to work on. And thank you very much, everybody, for coming. What are your grounds for asking the very, very final question? Well, I think we should just finish at this point. Okay, very quick. One sentence.
2: I'm just uh, wanting an answer which will be yes or no. And basically my question is that out of a Petro Crusades without spaceships, Financed by petrol currency, can a world fund change for climate change? And can a world fund that saves your life change really what's going on around? with avoid that critical point which we're already not doing too much to avoid. Uh, uh,
1: did you understand
4: the question? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, uh, look, I, I think you actually do need. Uh, a, te- a technology innovation fund uh, to, uh, to uh, foster the development, let's say, for instance, uh, carbon extraction uh, methods, uh, um, new forms of biofuels. So while you need a, certainly need a price on carbon, uh, you also need, need some of the revenues from that to be used in a in fund for developing uh, a technological innovation.
1: And if I can add, because that's back to our basic point, having a fund, using funds, and whether you use them well or you waste them really depends on the social relationships you set up for using them. And I think that's, in a way, the message that we want to get across. So thank you very much, everybody, for coming.